Scorsese's backing us. I'm playing the lead. Like it all felt like it was going to happen. And then it. This is an actor who has continued to entertain, touch, and surprise us in a wide range of roles. And it's a most unique honor to introduce. Amazing, amazing. Sebastian, what did your quarter-life crisis look like? My partner got very sick. Um, this girl had, a, had an illness, an autoimmune disease, and there was no cure for it. And we ended up going and doing um, a ceremonial uh, medicine, they call it, but in the rainforest called ayahuasca. And it completely changed my life. I ended up on a, on a, a boat in Cannes with, with Scorsese, and then uh, Leo DiCaprio turns up. Yeah. <laughs> like, this stuff is all really surreal. Yeah, yeah. But all of these things happened, and it felt like, it felt like, oh my God, this is it, this is my career. I want to go where everybody knows my name. Yeah, oh, true, I actually do know. Sebastian. Hello, Ryan. I start all my podcasts with the same question because usually it sets a narrative for how the rest of the conversation is going to continue. Okay. That question is, are you happy? Oh, fundamentally I'm happy, yes. Yes, I think, uh, I think deep down I think I'm happy. All right. What in your opinion is required to live a happy life? Um, Self-knowledge. I think uh, a feeling of... Um, a feeling of validation in your life, I think. Um, feeling part of it, not separate from it. Being, a, being a, uh, a participant as opposed to just an observer. Do you think happiness is what we should chase? I don't think we chase happiness. I think, we've, I think that one needs to find it fundamentally. Okay. Um, so I don't think it's something one finds out there. I think you... Uh, Learn to find it where you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Usually I leave this question more towards the end, but I know in your case that it's particularly interesting. Okay. So obviously the podcast is called The Quarter Life Crisis. Yeah. Would you say you have had a quarter life crisis? I definitely had a quarter life crisis, I would say. What did your quarter life crisis look like? Um, so... Uh, I, I guess my quarter-life crisis relates to finding meaning um, and, and finding happiness, you know. Um, and so I was, I would say, at 25, I had just... Um, I'd been acting for a few years. Things had gone quite well. Um, and it's a notoriously hard industry, acting, to get anywhere. And I think there was a moment of frustration and not realize, uh, realizing perhaps that this uh, glamorized idea I had of the career I wanted was still somewhat out of reach. And I, I reframed, I, I, refra I, I think I, I just t took a different track and I took my career more into my own hands. And as opposed to just being an actor, I started writing and producing, um, which changed my path dramatically and has led somewhat to where I am now. Yeah. I mean, it's a you much, did... Sorry to interrupt. It's, it's, a much, it's a much longer answer than this. This is such a big question. Of course. So let's, let's delve deeper, but that's, I guess. I guess that's what we're also here for. Yeah. Uh, um, what brought about that sort of reframing? Um, so many things. I think there's a, there's, there's a, um, there's a philosopher slash historian uh, called Joseph Campbell, who wrote a book called A Hero of a Thousand Faces. It's quite, it's quite a famous book. It's, um, it's the theory of like the human story and what that is and the fact that this, uh, this philosopher, Joseph Campbell, uh, he, he researched all the, all the kind of stories from multiple different cultures, from all the cultures around the world, going from the West to the East to like little kind of um, small indigenous tribes. And he found that there's a, a fundamental story that is found in all of them. And it's a, a kind of a coming of age story. It's about being unhappy in your certain, in your, in your specific circumstances when you're young, traveling away from what you know to learn something else. 
and then eventually bringing it back, this new knowledge or wisdom to where you came from and improving, improving way, like the place that you, you, were, you know, originated from. And this is the same stories. It's what George Lucas based Star Wars on um, and uh, the other films coming out again now. Avatar was based on this. And I think that that um, dissatisfaction and uh, leaving what you thought you know and learning something else and then realizing that home really is where the heart is. You know, mm -hmm. I think, I think that's, that, that is the story that I, I have found it within my own life. Mm -hmm. um, I had my father pass away nine years ago and that culminated quite nicely with me finding some success in my career and coming, coming back and talking to my, my old man about it before he died and, you know, kind of feeling, feeling pride from him. I think that was a big a big piece of the puzzle in terms of my archetypal kind of struggle with yeah. life yeah um so so yeah where did it span from i think it's i think it comes from the same place it comes from any of us wanting to wanting to do something and find meaning and have purpose and be validated um first of all when i think one is in their perhaps quarter life crisis if you want to use the term um, finding validation from others is important later, uh, earlier. And I think later as one gets older, it's becoming more about f finding validation from myself, you know, mm -hmm. finding meaning in what I'm doing and doing, doing it for me and other people then finding validity. But I'm really, really, I'm doing it to fulfill myself, I guess. Why do you think it's so common to look for validation from others, especially at this stage? I think that's what we're trained to do when we're kids. We're looking for validation from our parents, aren't we? Mm. So... Um, you know, you get a pat on the back when you're young. I think it resonates with you. And then later you want it from your other, the other people that you respect and appreciate. Uh, mm. You want them to, you know, think, think that you're doing stuff right. It's a, it's a measuring stick. Yeah. But I think in an industry which is as tricky as one, like, you know, the entertainment industry, I think, and, and, and also so kind of there are so many shallow compliments that are given there. Mm. You really need to learn to read between the lines and find your validation from yourself as opposed to others, because you can be the, um, you know, you can be the, 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 you can be exciting to the world for a moment and then, and then not suddenly six months later, someone yeah. else is the new thing. So yeah. yeah, you need to find it for yourself. So at some point you go on this path of refining yourself, I guess, right? What did you do to achieve that? Well, uh, it happened inadvertently in a way. I was in a relationship, um, at, at, at a certain point where my uh, my partner got very sick, um, this girl had a, had an illness, an autoimmune disease, and there was no cure for it. And we ended up going and doing, um, I don't know if your, your listeners will have heard of it, uh, we, we ended up going off and doing something, uh, a ceremonial uh, medicine, they call it, but in the rainforest called ayahuasca. And I ended up doing that for a month every three days, so I did it ten times. And I was there to, because we'd understood from some forums we'd read that it might help my, uh, my partner with her illness. Um, and in fact, it did, uh, which is interesting in of itself. But I also obviously did the, um, the medicine yeah. and it completely changed my life. Um, I learned some, I undid some negative patterns from the past, learned some fundamental truths about, you know, the meaning of things mm -hmm. and uh, and and it did it completely reframed my my uh my subjective reality yeah and because what what can you sort of describe what then happens like obviously that's probably always going to be one of these things you have to do it to understand yeah but yeah it's it, it's it's a very hard thing to to describe but um the the I had many psych different kind of psychedelic experiences, as it were, where I, I, I certainly wasn't, I wasn't here in this reality. And I, I, it, it, it would feel that there were a deeper truth communicating through me or to me or coming from deeper within me, mm -hmm. um, which was, uh, it, it cut out the um, kind of subjective lies of reality, the, uh, let's say, self-defeating prophecies, mm -hmm. the... Um, the the insecurities that the, there's so so many bad patterns that we've built up and and it's uh 
it, it made me face some questions, which, like, to, to, you couldn't really apply them to other people. They're deep, deep, like, untruths that I personally have held. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody has their own. Um, but there was a deep sense of liberation after I'd done the whole, whole course. And I came back to the UK after doing it. We did it in Peru. Um, and just my entire, my entire world and my entire career and everything just kind of blew up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to necessarily bore your listeners with my own personal um, understandings of them, but it, it cured of, of the experiences, but it certainly cured my feeling of separation from the world. It became less about me having to fight against the obstacles that were constantly thrown in my way yeah, yeah. And, and more of a, um, like a surrender to what is, but realizing that I am a, a part and parcel of everything. Mm-hmm. There is no... There is there is no war to be won, mm. you know. It's <laughs> I, f- I find it interesting that you use the word surrender, and the reason why is um, one of the sort of sub questions of the whole quarter life crisis question is um, when you're trying to figure out what path to take yep. and and what to follow. Um, if there's any advice there, and a few times now I've heard indeed the whole surrender yourself to what comes along. So would you also say if you're in this t- quarter life crisis situation and you're trying to indeed determine what am I going to do with the rest of my life yeah. to surrender in that case I, I, I guess because I think one can't really plan what they're one can make a plan of what they they think they're going to do with the rest of their lives but when things don't go according to that plan you have no choice but to surrender and I, I think for most people's experience you would say that you couldn't possibly have imagined mm-hmm. what life was going to present to you. Yeah. Um, Fair. So yeah, you just have to you have to see what's coming and not not resist too much when you have yeah. to deal with things that you weren't expecting to. Yeah. Fair. Then one of my research hypotheses with this podcast is that that or that I'm trying to figure out is that passion equals purpose. Passion equals purpose. Is that is that is that a question? Does passion equal purpose? In this case, for you, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess. Maybe the easier question at first is: Is there something you are inherently passionate about? Honestly, it's changed. It has changed since that quarter life crisis, uh-huh. and it's going to sound very. It's going to sound very. Um, maybe quite cliche, but. I think my purpose has changed to, from being what, like like wanting, let's say, the approval or validation of others, like being an actor, wanting people to think that you're great at what you do, what, what you do. Um, you know, I think it's changed from that to, to genuinely wanting to be the best version of myself that I can be. And that's, that's a moment-to-moment truth. Like it's about how I am when I'm on my own, how I am when thoughts are going through my head that are, you know, less than, less than, um, than ideal. Yeah. It's about uh, recognizing that, that sabotage and, you know, just presenting people with the best version of myself whenever I can. Yeah. Which is, it's, you know, which is, which is not, not the easiest thing, but it's an ongoing, it's a lifelong struggle. Yeah. And the better I get at it, the better my subjective experience of life is, but also the better the experience of everybody that, you know, I involve myself with. with mm-hmm. is, yeah. You know, and... I think when one gets past the like just the striving to to win in the system we're presented with making enough money paying your bills you know when when that stuff has passed and you're you know comfortable enough to not have to worry about the bills then I think you get to a point where you start thinking about this other stuff this yeah. non-emergency stuff and you yeah. realize that that was actually perhaps way more important than striving for the yeah. money, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps if we had dealt with that stuff earlier, then the money would have been more forthcoming in the first place. That was the, or that's sort of a sub-hypothesis again, that I think if you are, if we more actively deal with the core life crisis, that you are maybe able to avoid a midlife crisis. I think that's probably the case, yeah. But it's just about when you have it. That, that, exactly. Doesn't that just reframe the quarter life crisis to being the same as the midlife crisis? Just deal with it sooner. <laughs> For sure, yeah, yeah, but, or at least I feel like a lot of the reason why people have midlife crises is because they realize at some point, well, I'm not actually happy in the situation I'm in, Yeah. why not? 
Um, and, and what I do think would be more beneficial if more people have a quarter life crisis, as strange as that sounds, is usually you don't have other people involved this is in true. your life. Yeah. And a lot of the time in a midlife crisis, you also drag down others with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fair. So what we're talking about is we're talking about pushing the age of self-awareness to be sooner in one's I guess, yeah. Arc. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a very healthy thing. Yeah. Uh, I also feel like that's something, or I can only speak on behalf of my generation, but something that has also come up more. Yes. This, it wasn't, this didn't used to be as much of a topic, I feel like. No, I think... That, or an option even, I, I maybe. Think I think you're right. I mean, the... Uh, that the whole new, I, I hate the term, the woke culture. Mm. Uh, if we if we to take away the, you know, the the cynical mock mock making yeah. uh, kind of like parodies of woke culture, yeah. just to the kind of what the ideally should be, which is about you know knowing thyself, yeah. you know, to try and sound a bit biblical. <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah. I think that that is I think that that's a very valid thing to do as soon as possible. Yeah. You know, I think it's something that people should, I think people should know more. Certainly when I was at school, we didn't talk ever about meditation or self-awareness or, you know, uh, taking responsibility for mm -hmm. the thoughts in your mind. Yeah. You know, that whole idea of victimhood and the way you feel, the way you feel is valid and it's yeah, everybody yeah, else's yeah, yeah, fault. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. It's not really, is it? Yeah. I think in some circumstances, yeah, bad things are being done to people, obviously, but most people in our Western culture are, you know, bitter and angry for reasons they've made up in their own heads. Yeah. So obviously I uh, strolled over your LinkedIn and what was quite uh, surprising to me was that you did a master or studied at university in engineering, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I did a master's in engineering at Imperial. Why, first of all, why that master and how did you end up starting and acting then? Because that's obviously something completely different. I, uh... I did an engineering degree because I didn't know what to do and I was good at maths and physics and my my father was in physics as well, my late father. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I wanted to make money is all I thought mm. when I was 17. Um, and that degree was very well respected and appreciated in the banking sector to be an analyst or something like that. And that the plan was just not know what to do, wanting to make money was to go and work for one of the banks, the big banks like Merrill or Goldman or something. And so I did the degree and I didn't really attend lectures very often. <laughs> yeah. And I last minute learnt my exams out of books and then <laughs> managed to scrape through. Um, and in the last year, I've now spent, because my university was in London and... It was quite a quite a cliquey university. A lot of foreign foreigners who are incredibly good at maths and sciences would turn up, and I ended up just socialising not so much in my university, but all over London. And I met a bunch of people who worked in media and film, and I started getting so much encouragement from people um, to have a go that I applied to drama schools in my last year of my degree, and I ended up getting a scholarship to go. And I applied for a one-year course, and then... Um, I got a scholarship for three years. So I got to go back home and tell my physicist father that I was not going uh, yep. not, not, not to carry on in his footsteps. But he was amazingly supportive, especially when he found out I had a scholarship. Yeah, so. <laughs> understandable, yeah. So, so that was good. Um, and then I did that for three years. So I ended up, I did my master's in four years, and then I did drama school for three years. So I was a student for seven years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had jobs to help sustain myself during those periods. But, uh, yeah, when I eventually left drama school, I was very lucky because I came straight out and I got a big advert for a Visit Scotland campaign, a tourism mm. advert campaign, that this was back in the day when they when they paid really well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I got, I, I essentially got three years salary for a week in Scotland where I went whitewater rafting and Damn. I went and spent one day in a pub and they filmed us drinking in, yeah, a, yeah. in an Edinburgh pub. Uh, with running on the beach with kites and uh, what was the other one? Yeah, a walk in some highland area. Yeah. And I got a lot of money for it. And then I got um, uh, a nice support role in a feature film. Um, and that was great. 
and I just thought that oh, it's made like I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, things are things Came are happening. surprisingly easy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then uh, and then oh, I didn't work for three years, which was frustrating. I was going to auditions all the time, but just nothing landed. And that, strangely enough, I went from engineering to acting, and then I ended up becoming the. Uh, no, jumping ahead on my uh, on the CV. Yeah, um, I ended up being the. Head of sales in the UK for Heston Sangar, which is a Swedish bed making company. Okay, it's <laughs> <laughs> um, quite a transition. Yeah, it was a very random scenario where I got the where I got the job as well. So a friend of mine who lived in Knightsbridge, no, not lived in Knightsbridge, worked in an office in Knightsbridge near Harrods, opposite Harvey Nicks. Actually, he. Um, he rang me up one day and he knew that I had been at home, not working, running yeah. out of money, a bit mm. depressed, playing World of Warcraft too long. Um, and he rang me up and he was like, Seb, come out for lunch, put on a suit, make yourself look nice. All right, come yeah. out and I'll take you out for lunch. Stop mm. being such a grumpy guts. Yeah. So I'm like, all right. And I put on my suit and I go to Knightsbridge um, and uh, I go to his building where he works, the office building. And I walk in there, I'm a bit early. And as I get to the door of this very grand office building, a very pretty Swedish girl opens the door mm. and she goes, hello, are you here for the interview for Heston's Beds? <laughs> and I look at her and she's beautiful. And I go, yes, yes, I am. And uh, she goes, okay, come with me. And as we walk in and we sit down, um, I, uh, I somehow managed to pull it out of the bag. I asked her some very open-ended questions. And I said, so just quickly before we start the interview process, I mean, if you were to describe to me very briefly, I mean, honestly, day to day, what would my responsibilities be? Um, and, and, and I'm like, who will I be answering to? And she quickly gave me an overview of the job. Mm. And then when I sat down with her, I answered the questions <laughs> based on what yeah, she had yeah, literally yeah, told yeah. me. Yeah. And then it was all fun and it was all very flirty. But then uh, I saw my friend coming down. Yeah. I've been chatting to this girl for about 10 minutes now. I saw my friend coming down in a glass elevator behind where I was being interviewed. And, uh, and I said to her, look, this is really embarrassing. And I started to blush. And I said, I'm not really... I'm not really here for the interview. You just asked me so nicely at the door and I thought, what the hey, this will be fun. <laughs> I'm actually here for lunch with my friend and he's coming down in yeah. the lift. And she turned around and saw him and then she turned back around and now she was blushing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I said, look, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I haven't wasted yeah. your time, but I actually think I could really do this job. Remembering I, I needed a job. I hadn't earned anything for ages. I was yeah, yeah. desperate. I said, can I come back for an interview another day? And uh, and she said, okay, you can come tomorrow. And I went back and I met her tomorrow. And then um, they invited me back the next day and I did psychometric tests. And then a few days later, they rang me and asked me to go to Sweden to meet the owner of the company, mm -hmm. um, which I did. And then I was invited back a week later telling, telling me I'd had the job. And for the first two months, they wanted to do education. So mm -hmm. they started paying me and I moved to a place called Herrschöping in uh, Sweden where the Heston's factory is. And I spent a day for a month on a different station in their factory where they hand make these beds for a month. And then they sent me to Sweden, for, not sorry, so they sent me to Florida for a month to do an NLP, neurolinguistic programming seminar for a month with Richard Bandler, who is the inventor of NLP. They were paying amazing amounts of money yeah, yeah. to teach me neurolinguistic programming. From the man himself. From the man who invented it, who taught Darren Brown and yeah. all the other big hypnotists because yeah. they wanted me to learn incredible sales technique yep. to close deals for them. And I swear this was one of the best educations I've ever had. It okay. was really, really good. Um, yeah. uh, just in terms of how to communicate with people and how to, um, you know, do, do sales pitches and yeah. to, and to in, kind of enthuse people about ideas. And what I, I learned from it is that I, I naturally had an ability to it, but now it started to teach me that this, this awareness we were talking about earlier, it taught me when I wasn't doing it. So when I found myself under pressure and stress and my, and my behavior slightly changed, let's mm. say nerves and stuff come in, it taught me to be very much more aware of those physiological changes. Okay. So then I could fake the physiological changes a little bit 
I remember I have that the kind of experience in acting as well, which all kind of leads into it. And that would naturally pull me back into being in a natural, you know, open and, you know, honest and flowing state where it would make, you know, everything a lot, a lot, a lot better in communications and negotiations and that sort of stuff. Now, what was quite funny about this scenario was the people that were teaching, so Richard Bandler and his, his team of people that were teaching the NLP, I would have the classes with them during the day for this month, and in the evenings they would all go off to the Irish pub, and I would go and hang out with them at the Irish pub. Mm. So I'm sitting there with these trainers at NLP going, guys, this is like it's crazy. I mean, I'm not really a guy that yeah, should be yeah. the head I of sales. Be here, yeah, I yeah, should yeah. not be here. Yeah. I'm an imposter. And they all thought it was hysterical, but they were like, well, you're obviously a great salesman because yeah. you've got here, yeah. you know. Um, and I'd have lots of banter with them. We got really well. I'm still friends with a bunch of them. But then the next month, at the end of that month, I went back to the UK and our responsibilities ongoing as the sales managers of particular countries was to go back and um, have, have monthly meetings with all the other salespeople. And on my first meeting, I'd only just started the job, but the job was to be in the UK and to help turn shops, new locations into Heston Sangar kind of uh, showrooms. And I hadn't done a huge amount. I'd only been working for this month. And at the end of the month, I went for the meeting. When I got there to, to hair shopping, um, all of Richard Bandler's kind of, um, kind of other trainers yeah. were all there in Sweden from Florida. And they had been hired to be consultants for Heston Sangar to streamline the company and to make sure that all the right staff are in all the right positions. And when I get there... I get this uh, very knowing, like, wry smile (laughs) from this guy called John, who I'd been drinking with in the ice pub. And he said, Seb, we'll interview you first. (laughs) I went into an interview with him. And before I could say anything, he said, well, we all know you don't really want to be here. You want to be doing your acting. So um, I'm going to do you a favour. I'm going to recommend that they pay you for the year. We just let you go. (laughs) And that was it. So I was there for two, three months in total. They paid me for the entire year. They sent me back to the UK with a pat on the back and an amazing education in NLP and said, off you go, go and and do your acting. Uh Now, that education helped me know very much how to raise money. Okay. And so I then started going into producing and raising money for feature films and doing deals with producers and stuff to help kind of carve my career in the direction I wanted to go rather than it being at the behest of agents and waiting for other people to create opportunities for me. Mm-hmm. So this random movement from... Very en- random. En- <laughs> yeah, from yeah. engineering to acting yeah. to, um, you know, essentially business and then back into acting and now producing as well. Yeah. It gave me the skill set I needed to be a producer yeah. and understand the industry. When that... Uh- that space in between these like three years where you yeah. couldn't land an acting job, yeah. would you say that you had at the end of this three years when you ended up taking that job yeah. that you had given up? No, I absolutely hadn't given up. Um, but 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 needs must, and there there are immediate. This is why I brought brought it up earlier. There are immediate needs for, for finance, yeah. and you know you have to you have to earn yourself a life. And you have to take a, a chance when you're in something like an industry like acting or music mm. that someone's actually going to pay for you to do that thing yeah, you yeah, love. Of course, yeah. you know. And most of the time, no one's going to pay you for that. Yeah. So you have to you, you have to support yourself, and you have to have other other ways of making money. Yeah. I mean, I've done chauffeuring as well. I do a lot of chauffeuring, you know, in the, in, the, in the past. And even when things get get more complicated now, it's an easy way to go out and get make money. Just, yeah, just yeah. instant cash in hand. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know you you have to pivot. <laughs> you have to pivot. Sure. Yep. Um. So then, obviously, you come out of this job. You do pivot. Like you have now the financial backup to get started yeah. in the acting. What were those f- sort of? W- what was different when you came out the other side? How come then all of a sudden it started working better? Well, um, it's funny, isn't it? When, when one asks the question, how did, when people have changes in their lives and things, things just start to flow, I, I sometimes wonder is it if, if the person changed or have the circumstances changed or 
have the circumstances changed because the person has changed? Mm. Like, are you, if it's that kind of cosmic ordering or yeah. the, the yeah, secret yeah. kind of <laughs> mentality, but things just started to happen and opportunities that felt, you know, you meet people, they have a problem and suddenly now you have an idea about how to solve their problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot, because I had spent three years contacting, you know, producers and writers and directors and, you know, showing them my show reel and talking to them about the projects that they, they wanted to make. Um, that network was there and, and the, the, the people that would essentially, you know, end up investing in these projects, I started to recognize them more and started having the right conversations with them. Mm-hmm. And I found that when I, you know, if I, if, I, if I do an audition and I get a job as an actor and I get paid for the acting, it's great. But if there is a production and I've read the script and they're shy, you know, a couple of hundred thousand pounds, then I can raise the money, take a percentage of the money I raise, um, negotiate a role that I, I like, you know, if it works for the director. Um, and then, you know, I, I double dip. I do, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I pay for the acting, I get paid for the producing. Um, I'm, I'm helping other people manifest what they want to manifest. Yeah. And it just feels like a, it feels like a much better, mm-hmm. you know, a, a better situation to be in. And it means through the whole f- filmmaking process as well. I'm, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting rewarded. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, it, and it ended up after a few successes that people started coming to me as well. Yeah. You know, and so you stop. It's funny how that, yeah. that flywheel then starts spinning yeah. much faster once it's there. It's exactly. just finding those first exactly. opportunities. And then, and then, you know, the, the floodgates open for a while. Would you say that you got lucky? Uh, I would say that it would have, yes, uh, yes, I get, I got lucky, but sometimes you get to a position where you get lucky more and more often and more regularly, yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> where, what is it, opportunity meets chance or some yeah. shit like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so obviously acting in particular is one of these like star things, right? Everybody sees, wow, it's, it's crazy and stuff i try also though to talk about this sort of more the things people don't see let me put it that way so what about acting from your experience has been been the things people don't talk about okay well i can't i i shouldn't i i won't presume to think that anything i'm about to say is people things that people don't talk about because you know, many, many people have talked about acting and methodology and how it, how it manifests in your life. But uh, I think, I think certainly in hindsight, you know, being a bit older now and looking back, I think that acting is quite a cathartic experience. I think Explain to me what cathartic, cathartic means. means. A, a catharsis is, is where one can exercise one's own, uh, let's say, subtext. So you can exercise a demon, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. By by vicarious by, by by vicariously living through your character. Yep. So you know you study someone who's had had having some sort of crisis. Yeah. All you can do is when you're learning about that character is you can only empathize with those things that you've experienced in your own life. So when you attach these emotional understandings you have to this other character. By working through the narrative of this other character, you—it is a catharsis for your own yeah, suffering. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think that's you know the the need the need to be famous or the want or the desire to be famous uh, certainly for me has detached. I still like from from my desire to act. And mm-hmm. um, we had a conversation about this earlier about the. You know, I'm waiting for the role, next role that I want to play, as opposed to just wanting to act in anything that gets put in front of me. That's changed. Um, I don't just want jobs. I want I want now a job that 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 I will find fulfilling and that I find interesting. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, because of the producing and the fact that I can make money that way, I'm not. I now don't need to take. All right, there's no drive to take any role that doesn't yeah. really like like grab hold of me. Um, and my my desire to you know, be famous or be, be you know be be the central character is not you know I don't I don't have that anymore. 
Is that solely from getting older? I think the I think I think from generally knowing myself better. Because it's it's a very common thing that I think, even though most people will never say that, but I do think it's what attracts uh, people to certain industries. Same goes for the music industry, at least. Like the reason I think, at least often, the reason why people get into that is also because fame attracts in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there's. I, I think perhaps someone that just wants fame doesn't really know what they want. Yeah, yeah. Because what yeah. you really want is you want that acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, at, I always, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a an old American uh, sitcom or comedy called uh, Cheers. Mm. It's got Woody Harrelson in it, and it's quite an old show. But it had the theme tune to it that went, "I want to go where everybody knows my name." Yeah. Oh, true. I actually do not. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that that song always resonated with me a little bit, and I yeah. think that that's. You kind of you want to go somewhere where everybody like knows you and likes you, yeah, yeah. and I think that's to do with like that's what fame uh, seems like to people yeah. when they're young. Yeah. Uh, but actually, sometimes you really don't want that. You just want yeah, to be able yeah. to go somewhere and be on your own, yeah. and you know, and 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 you want to you want to 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 observe rather than you know mm. be the thing being observed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is it is interesting about like you know kind of jobs that are in the mass media. Is that you're 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 choosing to be a job where you're the subject the whole time? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Whereas most jobs yeah. is that you're like you're you're not. Most jobs is like you're, you're looking at objectively as something else. Is the yeah, subject. exactly. And I think that is I think that the need not to be the subject, mm. not to be the main event. I think that disappears over time when you start to see life differently. Right. I think I read at some point that um, acting or a reason a lot of people get into acting is because it gives them the ability to constantly be someone else. Yeah, yeah. or to constantly be someone when they don't know who they want to be. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's when you don't know who you are, right? It helps you explore that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I, I, I suppose like the next extension of that is if you do a lot of acting and you play a lot of different roles, you realize that you are a piece of all of these different characters. Right. You know, and I think that that's quite expansive. That realization, yeah, and also, and this is probably the main one, is when you're studying these narratives, these stories of these characters, one begins to really recognize what drama is, and you realize that the motivation of all these characters is born out of a story that they're holding tight to. So, in order to play a, a character correctly, then you must ha hold on and act in accordance with the story, the narrative that that character is holding on to. Yeah. And that gives a certain amount of liberation because you suddenly realize, well, what the hell is my story? Mm. What am I reacting to um, in my real life? And, and that, it begs the question. It's who Are you able to by now say what your story oh, I know, is? I know, what's these, uh, I know what the slightly sabotaging things are, would be. Um, but I think, I think, you know, I don't think I, I, I think I'm trying to disentangle my story as we go forward. I, mine's not so toxic, to be fair. I mean, I've come from a good background and, you know, I've had nice parents that were nice to me and, and you know, I had a, had a good education. I'm, I'm very, and I've never gone hungry. So I'm in a very, very privileged position. But I've, obviously, there are things that have, you know, created suffering for me. Um, but I don't think there's anything so toxic that it's like really carving my life up in a negative way. Yeah, yeah. But that, but that is the studying of acting is to is to understand the narratives of these other people and why they behave in these obtuse ways. Yeah, they are obtuse. That's why it's called drama. Yeah, you know, and this is why I th think that a lot of people say you shouldn't like people watch a lot of TV. Yeah, and. A lot of people are very dramatic these days. Mm -hmm. Like they react to things in a very strange way. And I think that there's a correlation between having TV on in the background. Mm -hmm. And if you're constantly hearing drama, you're hearing heightened behaviors. Yeah. So if you've got a soap opera on in the background, the whole point is that it's drama. Yeah. And that's not a normal way to behave. No. <laughs> being, yeah, yeah. being dramatic yeah, yeah, is not yeah. healthy. And yet all our role models, everything we see on TV are constantly acting, acting dramatically. I mean, I, I think that's, probably even proven right like that i don't think that's even a sort of no unknown right. that's because oh that's also at least the reason why i stopped uh, watching the news because everything is constantly so negative yeah and uh, and, and there not is a lot the truth either. and that as well <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and i 100 percent imagine that same goes for tv if you're constantly watching that 
Um, Kira and I recently watched uh, the Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, um, it's it's mad. Um, but I I read an interview about the actor afterwards where he explained that he had to go into therapy as a result of playing this character. So I guess I'm curious: is have there have there been any of the characters you've played that have more significantly influenced either your understanding of yourself or your life in general? Um, so I played uh, a, a veteran, a British soldier who got blew up, blown up in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a paraplegic, and I, I, I actually wrote this script with a with a business partner of mine called Stuart Brennan. Um, and so I spent a lot of time with injured veterans um, who were going through rehab. Uh, I spent a lot of time with a guy who was a paraplegic from a helicopter crash. And because we had three false starts on the film, where I thought we were about to start shooting, and then it got pushed back. Uh, and right, this happened yeah. three times until yeah. we eventually did it. I spent so long in that wheelchair because I would intensively do it for like a month or six weeks before I start shooting. So yeah. I ended up doing this three times. So I yeah. spent a good four or five months in a wheelchair. Um, and I really did it. You know, I would, go, I would go into town in a wheelchair and I would try and hail a cab. I had one, this is quite funny. I had, when I went on one of my little outings to practice in the wheelchair, I hailed a cab and black, black cabs in London, they have little, um, little ramps okay. that they could p- pop out and you could get a wheelchair up on it. And this, this, bless his heart, proper London cabbie, he, uh, he pulls over to the side of the road, he sees me flagging, he goes, don't worry, mate, he says, my ramp is not working. He says, well, don't worry, I'll get you in the car, no problem. Yeah. And he jumps out of his cab before I could say, before I could say, <laughs> yeah, don't worry, it's okay, yeah. I can actually walk. Yeah. But he jumps out of his cab, and, and, the, and part of the point was, you know, I was trying to negotiate London when I did these days out. Yeah. Not using my legs. It was yeah. about sticking in the wheelchair and seeing what yeah. it was like. But he jumped out of his car, he came straight over, and he literally picked me up, right? He picked up, and I'm not light. I've got to be 80, 82 kilos, yeah, yeah. right? This guy picked me up, and he carried me into the back of his cab. And now at this point, I'm like, oh, I can't tell I can't, I can't yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'll break his heart. And I know right. when you get out of the cab, just yeah. like... All right, see you uh, later, yeah, mate. Yeah. So he, he picked me up, he put me in the car, he folded up the chair, put it in with him, he took me into central London, and I let him pick me up and put me back in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Quite a wow. funny, funny scenario. Um, but there was another thing I had to learn to do before shooting. We had written in the script, because I'd seen someone do it on YouTube, I had seen somebody go upstairs backwards in their wheelchair. And they did it by... By reaching behind, so you bring your let's just say you bring your right shoulder up backwards to the arm handrail, and then you hold on behind you to the handrail, and then you put your hand over your body onto the wheel nearest the ledge, and then you'd see people pulling themselves up one step at a time by okay. turning the wheel across their body, yeah. pulling on the handrail. And I saw people doing this online, and I was like, oh, "That's cool. That's never been yeah, done yeah. in a movie before." So we yeah. wrote it in the script. And then I tried to do it. And, oh my God, it was hard. But <laughs> yeah. thankfully, because I had nine months, you know, I was yeah. just training and training and getting stronger and stronger. All, all arms, and, and I one day, when I got to the point where I could almost pull myself out, it was good because I needed to build my upper body and let my legs go skinny yeah. for the role as well. Yeah. But one day when I was heaving, trying to get out the steps, I just, I couldn't do it. And I, I just couldn't do it. And I rang up my, my uh, partner, Stuart. And I was like, Stuart, we're going to have to rewrite the script because I can't do this. We're going to have to find another way. Yeah. Right? And he was like, no, you can't. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. And literally, the week before mm. I had to shoot, I worked out how to do it. And it wasn't strength at all. It was a little thing Technique-y. where you lean forward, yeah. you lean back, and it's just this little motion. Yeah. And thankfully, I just worked out how to do it before we shoot. Yeah. And in the take in the film, I fall on one step because I've only just learned how to do it. Yeah. But grab myself and pull myself back up. That was it. Ended up being the take they used in the film because it looked yeah. so natural because yeah. I was actually kind of failing while I was doing it. Yeah. Um, but that was quite cool. So, what observations did I learn? That was your question, really. What did I learn about myself? Um, or well, if it even not not just learn about yourself, but also how that influenced, I guess your. Well, the, well, how it influenced my life or perception of reality. Whatever. Okay, well, I could tell you, I could tell you about that. So, so this film, I was very fortunate. We somehow through, uh, you, one might call it luck, but there was a many, many, you know, multiple lucky things that happened to get here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this script that we wrote somehow found its hands, it, it, its its way into the hands of Martin Scorsese, um, who 
who then said he liked the script and what did we want to do with it. And his script supervisor on numerous films, uh, a woman called Martha Pinson, she uh, ended up directing the film for us and Martin Scorsese produced it with us. And um, I found myself in Martin Scorsese's house in New York uh, with the animatronic doll from Hugo behind me on the sofa and his dog around my ankles <laughs> who I was petting. Um, I ended up on a, on a, a boat in Cannes with, with Scorsese. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Leo DiCaprio turns up. Yeah. Like, this stuff is all really surreal. Yeah, yeah. But all of these things happened and it felt like, it felt like, oh my God, this is it. This is my career. I've just written a script about uh, awards material about an injured veteran and Scorsese's backing us. I'm playing the lead. Like it all felt like it was going to happen. And then it, came out in festivals and did very, very well in festivals and I ended up going off to Napa and winning Best Actor and Best Film and it was all crazy and amazing. And then came back to the UK and we had a premiere outside the British Museum with uh, the armed forces. The army came and lined up the red carpet and were shooting their guns into the air and doing this whole procession mm. before the screening of the film. Like it was, it was unheard of. It was, yeah, it yeah. was amazing for yeah. this little British independent film with Scorsese behind it and the army behind it. And, and it was mad. And then the film didn't really come out. Like you can't now get it on Netflix. You can't get it on Amazon, even though yeah. it did well at festivals. And we're in a bit of a, and I can't talk about it too much, but we're in a strange, a, a, a strange holding situation with some politics and, other stuff, which means the film never came out. Now, when I walked down the red carpet, and this was my big break, it's, yeah, it's yeah. going to happen. I walked down the red carpet with the soldiers on either side, all right, and it was my film. I was the lead in it. And as I walked down that carpet, and I had my mum there, and it was amazing. Like I was so, she was so proud of me. She, she was more amazed than I was. As I walked down the carpet, I thought, "Wow, oh, this doesn't really feel any different at all." <laughs> you know? Yeah, it yeah. doesn't. This is what it's all been built up for. This yeah. is the thing that everybody else thinks is all glamorous and amazing, and it was just the same as any other day. Right? It yeah. was the same as it. everyone else is super excited, but for yeah. me, it was the same as every other day. <laughs> and I really had that total thought going through my head as I was walking down the red carpet with this beautiful girl on my arm. I was like, "Doesn't feel any different." Yeah, and I think that was a huge shift of perspective. Right. Um, it's the thing that you thought you wanted, you didn't really want. You yeah. know? Or didn't really need. You know? And can you name what, it, what you thought you would have wanted then? I guess that was the validation thing mm. we're talking about, but I yeah. just wanted the validation from myself, really. Yeah. You know? I mean, the quiet conversations I'd had with veterans after they saw the movie were much more valuable to me. Yeah. Um, Those, those moments, it's, it's the personal stories that about, about the film made the film more valuable to me than my own experience, really, yeah. later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a really funny one. So there's a soldier, and it just shows you the courage of some people. There's a Scottish soldier that I met who was in rehab who had lost um, one leg up to the knee, another leg completely, and half of one of his hands. And I was sitting there talking to him, and it's a Scottish guy. And he went, you know, it's really, really fucked up, Seb. And I was like, no, no, what's that? He said, I was in Afghanistan. I'm going Irish now. <laughs> But, um, get the idea. Yeah, you get the idea. He said, when I was in Afghanistan, the, uh, we were fighting for, like, we were protecting poppy fields on one side of the road, right? And then we were burning down ones on the other side of the road because of some agreement or, you know, yeah. you know, someone had paid their dues, someone else hadn't. He said, and then I stand on an IED and I get blown up and they whip me back to the UK and they put me on all the opiates made from these poppies, right? And then he goes, I said, that's not fucked up enough. He says, and then on Remembrance Sunday, for some strange reason, I have to wear a poppy on my jacket. <laughs> right? And the guy said it with this wry smile of yeah. the, what, how ridiculous is the world. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and, and for him to have that, you know, to have that gallows humor. Yeah. You know, even then, yeah. Even then. Um, and it really, that, I mean, to, to think that any struggle or emotional content that I have going on when, in my acting or mm. in my own personal dark night of the soul is of any importance whatsoever when you have stories like that being told to you. Is, you know, it, would, it, it reminds me of this very cliche saying that um, instead of looking up all the time, try looking down and see, you know. Ah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. See yeah. 
how good you actually have it. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, from from up here on the twenty second floor, it doesn't feel so bad. No, <laughs> no, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wild. So there, there was that film that was nice. That was a good experience. I had, but that wasn't even that long ago, right? That was maybe six, five, six years ago now. Yeah. Um, I think there is. I, th I, th I think that when I was younger and acting, there was an overindulgence in the idea of method acting and you know being the character and living it the whole time. Mm. But uh, as one, I would say. I, I, I think as I got older, I have stopped being so indulgent in that sense and just stuck to the rules of, of acting in a sense, which is as if you follow, if you understand the narrative or the the internal narrative of that person, then and you act, you respond in accordance with that subtext, then then it's 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 going to be a good performance. You don't need to. Uh, after a certain amount of indulgence in the character, you can let that go. You don't mm. have to kill yourself to yeah. to play a suicide. Yeah. You know, a suicide victim. I hope not. At least. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, it would be dedication yeah, yeah, to yeah, the yeah, yeah. to the act. Um, but that also takes a lot of pressure off. I think. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. No. It's 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 a it's a it's a self it's a self reflective like life being an yeah. actor. I think if you do it, if you if you're doing your job properly, I think self awareness must come. I think I'm already at my last question. What does the future hold for Sebastian? Right. That's a good one. So I hope more happiness. Mm -hmm. um, loving relationships. Work that will inspire other, others to have hope. I want to make films that give people hope, um, and I want and and in terms of materialistic kind of um, progress, I, my company, Paradox House, I would like for our development team because we have a great development team. I would like for that to grow and to be outputting more and more of the you know the same kind of stories, um, and uh, yeah, if I could build an empire of benevolent hopeful storytellers so that mm -hmm. would be amazing because i think that that is a very uh i think i think it's a i think that's a useful thing that i can yeah. provide to the world fulfilling H happy fulfilling stories that give people hope that's what i want the world to be uh, to be uh, injected with yeah don't doubt that you're gonna make that happen um Thank you so much for your time and your story. It's been a fascinatingly different story. <laughs> Thank you for uh, being interested. Yeah. So thanks very much. <laughs>